I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest to the program, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to chat with Carl about what's going on in the banking sector, also the future of the U.S. dollar, and I'll talk to him about how the debt ceiling fight going on now in Washington might end up and how you might be affected. It is the month of April. Happy Easter. I do have an April special report for you. If you would like to go to requestyourreport.com, I'd be glad to send you a copy of the April special report titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets. In the report, I've interviewed uh, four experts and offered my opinion as well uh, to give you an idea as to what might lie ahead for your 401k and IRA. Interestingly, a lot of these opinions uh, confirm the other opinions offered, so I think you'll find the report to be valuable. And when you go to requestyourreport.com to request the report, I'll be very glad to send you a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book as well as a copy of the Social Security Maximization book. So visit the website, requestyourreport.com, and we'll be glad to send you a box of all that information uh, at no cost to you and with no future obligation. So again, requestyourreport.com is the website. You know, when you take a look at what's going on in the economy, uh, where we're going from here, I wrote back in 2015 in the New Retirement Rules book that where we were going was predictable. I talked about the fact that when you study history, whenever there is easy money, whenever there is easy credit, initially you get a prosperity illusion, but then eventually you get inflation, and that is followed by a deflationary reset. Now, I think when you look at the current economy, we're seeing signs of that deflationary reset now kicking in. You just need to look at the recent jobs report uh, to see that the jobs report uh, seems to indicate that we are either on the verge of a recession or already in a recession. And when you look at the performance of stock and bond markets last year, you could make the same argument. But what about this whole notion that this is predictable? I want to give you just a bit from the new retirement rules book uh, that I wrote back in 2015. And in that book, I noted that easy money precedes easy credit. Now, what does that mean? Easy credit simply means it's easy to go out and get a loan. Interest rates are low. Certainly, that describes the period of time that we experienced uh, just a little over a year ago, I would say that ended. So easy money precedes easy credit, which precedes asset price bubbles, which precedes a financial crisis. And the financial crisis occurs when debt levels reach the system's capacity to handle debt. And because banks have debt as assets, we see bank failures, and certainly we've seen that uh, as well. Deflation then follows as debt is purged from the system. Now, this pattern is, I believe, happening now. And it's very similar to the pattern that we saw in the 1920s. 
So in this segment, I want to share with you a bit about what happened during that time frame and just see if you notice the parallels. Now, the Federal Reserve, today's central bank, was formed in 1913. And the Federal Reserve, as many longtime listeners know, is a private group of bankers. One of the first things this private group of bankers did when they were given control of the U.S. monetary policy by Congress and by the President was reduce the backing of the U.S. dollar by gold. Up until 1913, the U.S. dollar was backed 100% by gold, and the backing of the U.S. dollar was reduced to 40% backed by gold. Now, if you're a mathematician, you can do some reverse math and figure out that that means the money supply expanded by about 250%. Now, that is a massive expansion of the currency supply. And what happened? It ultimately led to private sector debt expanding to unsustainable levels during the 1920s, which is often referred to, this decade of the 20s is now often referred to as the Roaring Twenties. Well, when debt accumulation reaches the point that the system can no longer handle any more debt, then you have this debt accumulation trend reverse, and then we go into a deflationary period, which describes the 1930s. And we refer to the 1930s, historically speaking, as the Great Depression. So we had the Roaring Twenties, we had the boom, we had the bubble that built, and then we had the 30s, the Great Depression, when the bubble burst. Now this happened a couple of other times in U.S. history as well. The bubble burst in 1837 with the Panic of 1837. We had bank failures and we entered a deflationary environment. It also happened in 1873 as the country entered what is now known historically as the Long Depression. But going back to the 20s, the 20s saw a bubble in the real estate market as well as the stock market before both of these bubbles eventually burst. Now the Harvard Business School said this, about the stock market bubble and the real estate bubble. The famous stock market bubble of 1925 to 1929 has been closely analyzed. Less well-known and far less well-documented is the nationwide real estate bubble that began around 1921 and deflated around 1926. We had the subprime mortgage collapse that led to the financial crisis of 2007-2008. We then had currency creation begin literally from thin air by the Federal Reserve, which has kicked the can down the road to this point. But the same thing happened from 1921 to 1926. At that time, currency could not be created from thin air because the dollar was still backed at least somewhat, at least partially, by gold. Now, in the 1920s, the real estate bubble was concentrated in Florida. Interest rates were low. 
advertisers were promoting a Florida lifestyle that was leisurely and filled with sunshine. And the Harvard Business School described the atmosphere in Florida as a, quote, collective madness. City lots in Miami were bought and sold as many as 10 times in a single day. Now, as crazy as that sounds, a little over a year ago, you couldn't really go buy any piece of real estate here in the United States unless your offer contained something called an escalation clause. As soon as you made an offer on a piece of real estate, you were automatically, in just about every case from my experience, putting yourself into an auction. And you would say that you'll beat any offer by $500 up to whatever your maximum amount was. Well, in the 1920s in Florida, there was no escalation clause, so that's why properties were sold as many as 10 times in a single day. In 1926, however, it all came crashing down, and just a few years later, the stock market followed. This deflationary environment emerged, and during this deflationary time frame, debt has to be purged from the system. So this pattern of currency creation creating a prosperity illusion, and this prosperity illusion is really fueled by debt accumulation, but once the system reaches its capacity to service the debt, the deflationary period kicks in. Now that's where we were back in 2008, and it wasn't too long after that that the Federal Reserve began to pursue a program of quantitative easing or currency creation. They were trying to keep this deflationary period from kicking in in earnest. And they did it. They pumped up the market, but now here we are again. And if you take a look at the worldwide debt that existed in 2008, it was about $100 trillion. Today, it's about $300 trillion. So the debt problem has gotten worse, and ultimately the deflationary period that we enter will also have to be painful. That's why I'm offering this month, during the month of April, my special report along with some bonus information. The bonus information will be a copy of my revenue sourcing book, which contains a planning strategy for the current economy. And uh, you'll also get a copy of the Social Security Maximization book. And the April special report is titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets. I think you'll find all the information to be valuable. Go to requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the information, and I'll be very glad to do so. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific author and commentator. Uh, you can read his work at market-ticker.org. And when you go to the website, uh, on the right-hand side, there is a link that reads, Click What the Media Does Not Want Read. There's some good stuff there as well. Carl, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, Carl, let's just... Uh, 
jump in here and, and 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 talk about all the excitement for lack of a better term we've seen in the banking sector uh silicon valley bank followed by signature bank uh the the, the fed backstopped uh the, these these uh, depositors so even the uninsured deposits uh, depositors are going to be made whole uh well what's your forecast is this uh an isolated incident or in your view are we going to see more of this the well, with Silicon Valley and, and um, Signature Bank, really two of the same thing. Uh, everybody tries to play these, you know, the SVB thing as being a, a one-off uh, out in Silicon Valley, and, and to some extent it was, in that they were a funding conduit for startup firms. So you need to kind of understand how banking generally works, and that there's a whole lot of banks. And so you borrow money to buy a truck from one bank and you go to the car dealer and you buy the truck and the car dealer deposits your check in a, in a bank. Uh, but it's probably not the same one that you got the loan from. And so this transaction flow happens millions of times a day, obviously, from everything from you know, buying groceries to coffee to whatever. And uh, all of this gets balanced out. And the, those, those banks that have an excess of cash uh, lend it to the ones that have a shortage. Uh, but over time, uh, you know, tomorrow the flow goes the other way because someone else borrows money from somebody, you know, from the other guy. And it, so, so it all kind of evens out. But when you have your business concentrated in one place as a, as a financial institution, which SVB did, uh, there is no flow that comes back in except through new deals. And so <laughs> you, you, you are the checkbook you're the place where the, the startup company has their cash account to, from which they pay wages. Okay, you know, every Friday is payday, right? And so these guys get paid and they go spend that money. Well, that money leaves SVB. How's it come back in? Okay, so <laughs> unless somebody comes and deposits it and, and uh, the people that work there, they don't have checking accounts with SVB. So, you know, the local grocery store doesn't have a deposit account there. So, as long as there are deals that are constantly being done, this flow is at least somewhat reasonable. But otherwise, what ends up happening is this institution has to go into the overnight money market every night and has to borrow funds in order to make their books balance so that they have the reserves and you know they can make payroll tomorrow for the next company, right? Um, well, you do that for long enough, you're going to go broke. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's a one-way flow. You don't get any of that cash ever. You're constantly paying it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, if you lose, you know, a penny a transaction on every transaction, no matter how much you start with, eventually a zero. And so, and then to, to compound the problem, um, the loans that these guys wrote were, were mostly to the insiders and all in very heavily over-levered real estate markets, like out in San Francisco and stuff like this. So they had 30-year paper uh, that was written at uh, when when interest you know you could get a 30-year mortgage at two and three quarters or three percent. Now uh, that same mortgage is six, and so if there's uh, the average mortgage prepays out usually in about seven years, but when rates go up, they they people don't move as often, so they stick on your books for a lot longer. And if, let's say, you have seven years left of this note before it is probably going to pay off, uh, and there is a 3% difference in the rate of today's mortgage and yesterday's mortgage, well, sometimes three is 21%. Uh, 
Um, it's not exactly that because it's actually an exponential function, but it's close enough. So if you want me to buy that mortgage from you that you wrote for $300,000 or 600000 or you know, in California, good God, it might be a million and a half, right? Um, right. I'm not going to buy it from you unless you'll give me that that uh, 21% discount because I can buy the 6% one and get the higher amount of interest. Why would I buy yours? That would be stupid. Uh, nobody in their right mind is going to buy a, a mortgage bond at 3% when they could have a, have one at 6 unless you give them the discount so that the amount of the total amount of money they make is the same. Um, well, what happens when this, this bank has to go, you know, people start withdrawing their money and the bank has to go and sell these, these bonds, whether they like it or not, uh, because that's their assets and oops, they're worth 80% of what they were worth when they wrote them. Okay. So that's, that's how that failure happened. Um, the, the, the 900 pound gorilla in the room is that this was obvious. If you looked at their balance sheets back in the third quarter of last year. Okay, that this was going to occur. And the law is that the government, the FDIC, and the state regulators, along with OCC, are supposed to step in when that kind of thing happens and stop it. And say, you must liquidate this stuff. You must do it now, because (laughs) if you don't, you're bankrupt. And so, you know, you no, you do not get to sit on this for another six months and see if it fixes itself. That's not how the, you know, (laughs) <laughs> we don't allow people to do that kind of thing. Well, they did allow people to do that kind of thing, and that's what happened. So the signature bank out in New York was doing essentially the same sort of thing, but they were doing it largely with cryptocurrency-based projects. And so, again, it was a one-trick pony. There was very little balancing flow that was going on and off. And as a result, when people wanted their money, they had to try to sell these assets, which were all at ridiculously uh, large discounts as a result of the, you know, just the fact that they were sitting on them. Now, what the, what the regulator should have done was come in and said, as soon as rates started to go up, they should have said, okay, look, if you take this loss now, it's a 2% loss. If you sit on this and rates go to 6%, it's a 20% loss. You take the 2% loss, you don't die. Okay, but that's not what they did. So the the failure is exactly the same thing that happened in 2008. They had plenty of warning. They didn't do anything about it. And these these two institutions blew up as a consequence of that. Um, in point of fact, I don't believe there's going to be any cost at all to the deposit insurance fund. The reason being there was still a bid on the bonds at SVB, which means the the capital stack of the corporation was not exhausted. So there was not a, there is no loss to the non-insured depositors, but it could take six to 12 months to unwind this. And of course, there'll be costs involved in doing that. Uh, the people who owned the stock in the bank and that owned the bonds, uh, well, guess what? They got zero. And that's what happens when you buy a company and goes bankrupt is you get zero. So that's fine. Uh, that's, you know, it's the risk of playing in that in the markets in general. Um, is this limited there? No. Uh, there are plenty of other institutions that have similar exposures, but not nearly as bad There are a lot of people that have been making noise about, uh, for example, Schwab. I I can't tell you how many people said they think Schwab is going to get nailed like this. Uh, No way. Absolutely no way. I've looked at the quality of the assets that they have. Um, They, they of course, I mean, you know, that's a huge brokerage, not just a bank. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, And that one caught my attention when people started flinging that around. 
because that that would be a you know a truly nasty situation if it was to arise. And I, I look, I just don't see any possibility that this kind of a situation can arise with with those kinds of institutions. But are there other banks that are out there, including publicly traded ones, where this kind of an imbalance exists? Uh, yes, I'm sure there are, because the regulators once again have not been doing their jobs. So, Carl, do you, and if you're just joining us, I'm chatting to Mr. Carl Denninger. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Um, you, you know, when you mentioned uh, a comparison to 2008, uh, are, are we headed down that same road again, in your view? Well, I think we've, we're, we're probably in a worse set of, of circumstances than we were in 2008. Uh, simply because we went out and did a, over the last three years in particular, uh, we did a bunch of really, really stupid things from a fiscal and monetary point of view. And as a result, the conduits, and, and some of them geopolitical, I mean, the, the war in Ukraine is, is part of it. Uh, but it's not solely there. Uh, the COVID medica- medications that we did, and, and I'm not talking about the, the policy things per se, I'm talking about the monetary things, the amount of money that was thrown around that, that we didn't have, it was all put on the credit card. Uh, the dislocation impact that that has had in the currency markets is extreme. And as a result, it has essentially slammed the door on being able to export our country's inflation, which we have been doing for the last 25 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. And we have con- our Congress has uh, gotten to the point that they honestly think that they can do this on an indefinite basis and spend money in excess of what they tax and not have it show back up in inflation in our economy. And it's never been true, uh, but it's been hidden for a long time by, by trade balance. And it's just simply that international transactions take a long time to go through. You order something, it takes time to make it, it takes time to ship it, it goes on a boat, it goes on a, you know, on a whatever, uh, and then you get paid for it. And during that period of time, if the value of whatever currency you transact in changes on a substantial basis, uh, you could get a windfall, but you could also be bankrupt. I mean, we've seen 20% moves in the value of the dollar in both directions over the last year and a half. And if you think about that, how many businesses have a 20% that make things, okay, steel, what, copper wire, whatever, how many of those companies can absorb a 20% loss on their invoice and not be out of business? Right, exactly. Okay, I mean, that's, yeah, that's not going to happen, okay? I mean, it, that would bankrupt almost anybody. And so what you now have is these, you're increasingly seeing this. You're seeing it in the oil markets. You're seeing it in the commodities markets. You're seeing it across the world. People are saying we do not want to be paid in dollars. We want to be paid in our local currency. Yes, we understand that our government is kind of stupid and they do dumb things and, you know, we have an inflation problem here and da-da-da-da-da. However, we're not going to be bankrupted overnight because there's a 20% change in the exchange rate in in the period of time it takes us to make this coil of wire for you. Well, I want to explore that more in the next segment, uh, particularly the, the, the worldwide move away from the U.S. dollar, as I perceive it. I'm chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, his blog can be read and viewed at market-ticker.org. When you go to his website, there is on the right-hand side a link that reads, Click with the, click what the media does not want read. I'd encourage you to check that, that out as well. I'll continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. My guest on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. If you're a longtime listener, you recognize Carl as a frequent guest. Uh, I always appreciate Carl's perspective, and uh, you can learn more about his perspective by checking out his uh, work at market-ticker.org. 
If you're just tuning in, uh, there's a link on the landing page uh, on the right-hand side uh, that reads, "Click what the media does not want read." I'd encourage you to I'd encourage you to check that out as well. Uh, so, Carl, we we started to talk about this at the end of the last segment. Worldwide, there certainly seems to be a move away from the U.S. dollar that is accelerating. Uh, there, there are a number of uh, trade agreements uh, bypassing the dollar. India has thrown the rupee out now as uh, for consideration as a, uh, a, a currency to be used in international trade. Uh, the BRICS coalition is, is growing. Uh, is this the beginning of the end of, of the dollar as the world's reserve currency? Um, well, if it is, it's a result of our own actions. And and I don't know that this this whole reserve currency thing is such a, I mean it's it's a shibboleth of a of a sort. And I and I have always found it to be a rather foolish way to kind of look at the the hegemony that developed around the dollar. Uh, yes, certainly some of it is because we like to swing our weight around, especially when it comes to you know to foreign policy and uh, and particularly with oil and things like this. Okay, fine. Um, but the reality of it is, is that when you look at sovereign wealth, when you look at actual government involvement, as opposed to global trade between private businesses, the the government side of it is is just not the the big enough piece to swing the narrative. Okay, it doesn't it doesn't change outcomes. What changes outcomes is is the is the time and value preferences of merchants, and that's that's what we've destroyed. And it, and we did it. it. It isn't that the BRICS or somebody else has decided that you know they're going to spank America. Um, it's not a it's not a set of governments that have done this. It is the fact that we have put a volatility into the dollar that has not been there on a historical basis. We caused it, and as a result of our causing it, people in the in the practice of international trade, which you know, an awful lot of uh, you know the stuff that we buy here in the United States it has some origin overseas, and you know, and this is, I mean, this is just the nature of trade. It's always been that way. Uh, they want they want to know when they place that order and they agree to pay. They want to know how much they're actually going to have to pay, and what and what they're going to get if they're the person doing the producing. And if they if they can't get that in dollars, and the and we don't have superior stability. Why would they not take it in, uh, you know, in rupees or uh, or pesos or whatever country that you know, whatever their particular currency is, their own currency, because they, you know, they have some control over that. Okay, they have some influence over what their government does. They have no influence over what our government does. Well, you know, Carl, I was uh, I was reading. Speaking of bricks, uh, Michael Mahari wrote a piece that, uh, you know, there there is talk anyway that. Uh, uh, the BRICS are developing a strategy that uh, would be a currency, rather that would be pegged to gold or or some type of of uh, tangible asset, um, and that actually came from um, I believe Alexander Babakov, who uh, was was previewing this BRICS summit that's going to happen this summer in August. Um, is is this just talk, or do you, do you think we're we're on the verge of seeing some world currency that uh, has a link to gold, and and we kind of restore that gold exchange standard system? No chance in Hades. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to ask you what you're thinking <laughs> or what you mean by uh, that. I, uh, yeah, no, I uh, <laughs> we're on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> 
if we, if we were sitting in a pub with a couple of pints between us, uh, you'd, you'd get some colorful language that was not suitable for polite company. Zero chance of that happening. But boy, oh boy, are all the gold bugs and the other uh, metal monitors out screaming about uh, this stuff. And they do it about every five or ten years. And uh, they've, they've never been right before, and they're never going to be right. And the basic problem with it is that if, if you think about the, the, the global supply, uh, if you're going to do this kind of thing, you, uh, you have to have a supply base that these people can draw upon. Okay, so where is the global supply of mineable gold? Where is it? And, and oh, by the way, that's not among all the bricks who would be the ones who would use this. So maybe, maybe you can explain to me why any country would put its monetary base in the hands of, oh, I don't know, um, some dictator in the Congo. <laughs> that doesn't seem very intelligent, does it? Well, let, 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 me, let me play devil's advocate here for just a second, because I'd love to hear what your perspective is. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, the, the, the price of gold arbitrarily set at $20 an ounce, which, uh, you know, went away for the most part in 1933 here in the States with, with Roosevelt's executive order. And then when uh, Bretton Woods actually reestablished the link between the dollar and gold, the price was arbitrarily set at $35 an ounce. Why couldn't why couldn't the price be arbitrarily set at some big number and I, and I haven't done the research but just say ten thousand dollars an ounce or whatever the number is. Why 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 would somebody do that? What, what what? Well well now wait a minute. Think think about what you just did if you did that. Okay, let's say let's say that you happen to be uh, the dictator of a country that happens to have a nice little gold deposit on your you know under your feet, right? And that kind of an act takes place. Okay, that's about five times the market price today. You just made those people rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Uh, that's that's insane. Nobody's going to do that. It's not going to happen. Let me, along these lines, get your take on another topic, Carl. There's a lot of talk, and, and, and China's been testing it. Uh, central bank issued digital currencies. Um, how do you think? Uh, well, what's the future of a central bank issued digital currency here in the United States, in your view, if you have a view? Well, I do. We we already have a central bank issued digital currency. It's called the dollar. What, what percentage of the dollars in circulation today are in the form of paper? Basically, none. I mean, you know, okay, yeah. There's there's a fair bit of paper out there circulating. But when you go use a credit card or you electronically pay your power bill from your bank on a web page, that's digital money. It's, now, what these people are talking about is essentially a blockchain-based thing where these ledger entries, instead of just being ledger entries, are digitally signed. Um, there is a tremendous privacy problem there if you get rid of paper currency and small anonymous transactions in that now the provenance of every transaction that has ever been committed by anyone all the way back to the beginning of whenever this thing is formed uh, can be traced and that and, and there's no longer a thing called the statute of limitations it doesn't exist it can be looked at you know 100 years from now when you're dead and been eaten by worms um, I, I wonder whether or not the efficiencies makes sense there. And the reason is we already have this kind of a transactional system in the United States. It's called Fedwire. 
uh, it is if if you wire money to buy a house or whatever, that's that's where it goes through. It's all digital. Uh, there's one in in Europe in general in Europe called Swift, um, and so you have you know you have those two systems. Uh, is is there you know the Fed is testing an enhanced version of this that is f- supposed to be faster and more secure. Uh, this is probably a good thing from a standpoint of clearing transactions in the United States, and that uh, right now the security on Fedwire is essentially physical. Okay, and that you you know you have I mean it's. It, it's old school stuff. It goes back to the days of teletypes and you know and, uh, <laughs> and telegraph machines. <laughs> so I mean that that uh, you know that that uh, gets brought into the the modern world. I don't think is anything all that interesting. But I but a a ledger based system that is cryptographically uh, controlled it has the potential to become very invasive because now all of a sudden. Um, uh, you know, we we don't need an IRS to, to actually look at tax returns anymore. They they have an instant view of every single transaction that everyone has ever committed within the United States. Yeah, so, uh, in, in the time we have left, uh, as, as you look around the world at uh, countries that are using currencies other than the dollar in trade, uh, do you see any currencies that stand out as potential dollar alternatives at this point? Not really, and and one of the biggest reasons for that is that the the one that everybody would like to come would uh, like to argue could be there would be China with you know with the yuan or the renminbi depending on how you char- you know to characterize it. China's biggest problem is that there really are two Chinese currencies. They're the same, but they're not the same. Try to take a large amount of money out of China, and you'll find out all about that, and you won't like the way that you find out about it either. Um, especially if it's something that the central government doesn't want you to do. So uh, there's uh, there's real problems with stability there. The euro, uh, I don't see as a as a a real stable. The euro is a poorly conceived currency union without a political union. That that has never made sense. Um, that it still more or less survives is surprising. I mean, you know, we all know what happened with you know with uh, you know Greece and Italy and all that, right? But um, they haven't solved the basic problems there that you have wildly disparate funding situations between the users of that currency. So I don't know that that you're ever going to see an international coalition uh, that will coalesce around something that is actually designed in a way that's reasonably stable. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to have multiple political entities that are doing this and it's not one country's currency – then you need to have hard caps on the fact that neither of them can basically siphon off wealth from the other, which is what has happened with the euro. And that has to be absolutely prohibited. And that means nobody can run budget deficits. Okay, now, well, good luck with, you know, managing to get that to work. How'd that work out over in, you know, in Euroland? Right, well, um, you mentioned uh, budget deficit, and we've got uh, maybe a minute and a half or so left in this segment. We have this debt ceiling issue uh, that always seems to get resolved at the last minute. Do you see anything different happening this time here uh, in the States? Well, history would say the the correct answer is no. Um, I will say that Kevin McCarthy has made clear that he will not bring a standalone debt raise to the floor. Uh, Of course, we've heard this before, right? 
how's that going to work? Biden has said he's not going, he's not going to negotiate the debt ceiling based upon policy. Okay, well, those are two diametrically opposite positions. <laughs> um, one of them is going to change or we're not going to raise the debt ceiling, in which case the government now has to live within what it taxes. Uh, that would be a dramatic shift on an overnight basis in the United States. Um, it would it would be very severe. It would not be the end of America. And for those people who think it would be, no, it would not. Um, but we have, uh, just as, as one example, fully one-third of the money the federal government spent last year was spent by CMS, that's Medicare and Medicaid, that's one third. It's over two trillion dollars. If you chop out the debt, if you were to to stop that, we would be running a huge surplus. So the idea that this problem is unsolvable is false. It is absolutely solvable, but neither political party wants to do it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, amazing how fast almost a half hour goes with you. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule today to talk to us. And we'd love Anytime. to have you back down the road. You bet. Anytime. Take we will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. And thanks again to my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger, for joining us on today's program. If you're just tuning in, I have available... During the month of April, an April special report titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets. I interview four experts getting their take on where stocks and bonds and metals will go. I also offer my opinion. The report is available absolutely free by visiting requestyourreport.com. And when you go to the website and let me know where to mail the report, I will also include a copy of the best-selling revenue sourcing book that contains a planning strategy for the current economy. You'll also get a book about how to maximize your Social Security. That book is titled The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. So again, to get the revenue sourcing book, the Social Security Maximization book, and the April special report titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets, visit requestyourreport.com. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about the similarities between the 1920s and 30s and where we are today. I talked about the fact that there is this predictable pattern that often emerges, and this predictable pattern repeats itself. We have easy money, followed by easy credit, followed by asset bubbles building, followed by asset bubbles bursting and a financial crisis. This happens over and over again throughout history. In fact, it happened for the first time in the United States back in the 1830s. Now, after the War of 1812, Congress and policymakers were sitting around trying to figure out how to pay down the war debt, and they came up with this idea of setting up a bank that could actually manufacture paper currency. And that's exactly what they did. So they set up this bank in 1817, and there was currency that was created 
There was widely available easy credit. There was a price bubble and then ultimately a bust as banks failed during the panic of 1837. So again, this pattern repeats itself over and over and over again. Now there was an article written about this panic of 1837 and I want to give you just a bit from the article that I found. This panic was made worse by a number of factors. Large debts incurred by states due to overexpansion of canals and the construction of railroads, an unfavorable balance of trade as imports exceeded exports, and there were land sales that were going through the roof. A little bit more from the article. Between 1834 and 1836, sales totaled 37 million acres of land. Now that may not mean a lot, but let me put that in perspective. By 1836, just before the bust kicked in, sales were 10 times greater than they were in 1830. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that the Florida real estate market saw city lots in Miami sell as many as 10 times in a single day. Most recently, as I pointed out in the first segment, if you wanted to buy a piece of real estate, even a year, year and a half ago, you probably were not going to get the real estate unless you put an escalation clause in the offer to subject yourself to an auction. The article written about this boom period, this prosperity illusion period from 1831 to 1836, describes the mood of the country as a speculative mania. A Hartford speculator related making 75% annually on an investment of $1,000 in Michigan where the boom was in high gear. Valuation of real property in New York increased 50% in five years and Maine timberlands tripled in price in just a few years. So here you see again this predictable pattern. Easy money precedes easy credit. Easy credit fuels an asset bubble. The asset bubble bursts and there is a financial crisis. Now we have recently seen bank failures, which I talked about today with Carl Denninger. But if you go back to 1837 and take a look at what happened to banks at that time, there were about 850 banks in existence in the United States. 350 of those banks failed completely, and another 62 experienced partial failure. So about half of all banks in existence in 1837 either failed or experienced partial failure. About 40% of all banks failed completely. And then after the panic of 1837, the country went through a deflationary time frame during which debt had to be purged from the system. It was a time similar to what was seen in the 1930s. So we have a lot of debt, as I mentioned that in the first segment, we've got about $300 trillion worth of debt worldwide. And it's my view that this deflationary period will be impossible to avoid. 
So to that end, go ahead and uh, go to requestyourreport.com. I'll be glad to get you some additional information. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Hope you got something you can use.